Hello, I'm Tom Fraser, and this is the Tom Fraser Podcast. Today, I am talking with Pak Gita Widiawan about Indonesia, a dynamic and fascinating country. This is the second segment of our interview. Gita, Indonesia will be hosting the Group of 20 Summit of World Leaders November 15th and 16th in Bali, just in a few days. At this event, the heads of state of the world's 20 largest economies will be discussing a number of important topics, including the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, and the global economy. This is the first time Indonesia has hosted the G20 Summit. What are Indonesia's objectives for the summit? I think the, uh, the main focus uh, logically would be on, on the common thread you know, amongst the members of the G20, which would include climate change, global finance, and public health, right? And public health, as we've seen, you know, how it relates to the past two and a half to three years uh, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic uh, for the region, uh, by way of Indonesia's being a host for this G20, because it will definitely put Indonesia on on the map uh, a little bit differently from how Indonesia has been perceived. Unfortunately, Indonesia is a country of scale that just continues to get underrated, and and you know a lot of people maybe have the capacity of saying it is the third largest democracy in the world, it is the fourth most populous country in the world, but that's where the sentence stops. It, it doesn't continue with additional phrases where actually Indonesia could play a more proactive role, not just in the context of those three, you know, you know, uh, common areas, uh, but I, I do believe that Indonesia has the ability, if not capability of, um, you know, showing scale in the context of, you know, more difficult situations that arise in the world. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful that, you know, Indonesia could play a role, at least as a host, in putting people to senses with respect to what's happening in Ukraine, and hopefully putting some senses uh, in the context of how the decoupling between China and the U.S., uh, you know, uh, need to be better understood uh, by uh, people around the world and better managed, hopefully. And and I always get asked uh, as to, you know, whether or not Southeast Asia would have to be, you know, making a choice uh, in the context of this increasing decoupling between China and the U.S. I'm, I'm actually in a camp that believes that Southeast Asia unfortunately doesn't get known for being a, a, a region of 700 million people. And 700 million, that's a lot of people, you know, and that puts us, you know, as the fourth largest region in the world. Uh, and it is $3.3 trillion economy. I'm actually in a camp that believes that the onus is actually upon the United States and or China to basically try to make a difference you know, for themselves and also for purposes of, you know, better welfare, um, better peace and better security in the region of Southeast Asia. Uh, yes, you know, I think some people would argue that there are some countries in Southeast Asia that may seem leaning more towards one over the other. But I do believe that for the most part, uh, the other members of Southeast Asia do have 
scale and a much better understanding of, of where the world needs to go. And, and, and I do believe that Southeast Asia uh, will not be pressed into the corner as to choose between be it a Huawei or an iPhone. What does hosting an event like the G20 Summit for the first time represent for Indonesia? It, it, it represents, I think, putting Indonesia on a world stage unlike perhaps any other multilateral events that would have taken place in Indonesia. We've, we've been host to the APEC summit, you know, uh, APEC is, is not a small potato, but uh, at the rate that the G20 involves, you know, the 20th or the 20, uh, the 20 largest economies of the world, that represents a lot more than 60, 70% of the global economy. Uh, I think it matters more for Indonesia uh, than ever. Uh, before, which is why it's key for us to make sure that the event, you know, goes on successfully, uh, not just by way of the protocol, the administration, but I think by way of the substance that needs to be brought up in the discourse, you know, that happens at the summit. Uh, and and I do believe that it's a, it's it's a great opportunity to at least talk about those three topics of climate change, public health, and uh, uh, and 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 global finance uh, for purposes of, uh, you know, the region uh, and the world, of course. Uh, let, me, let me try to, you know, put some color on, on each one of these. The climate change topic, I think, has been on the agenda in the minds of many people, but it really hasn't gone to the level where, you know, deployment of technology for climate change purposes or climate change prevention purposes uh, has has gotten to a tangible level for you know many developing economies around the world and and I do believe that Southeast Asia is a region that that needs to uh, be able to be a beneficiary of this technological you know advancement as to uh, you know hopefully slow down you know the speed of climate change i I don't believe that you know we're going to be able to reach you know, the levels of targets that would have been articulated, be it in Glasgow or Paris, in the year 2030, uh, on the back of policy. I, I'm more of a believer of our being able to achieve the target in 2030 from a technological standpoint. And this is where I think the the, the Western world or the most advanced, uh, you know, economies around the world need to better understand how to deploy their technological capital towards, you know, other developing economies. I'm more confident about our being able to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, but for 2030 and 2040 purposes, uh, I think technology is going to play a much more important role. And this is where I think conversations amongst the G20 members need to make sure that, hey, you know, I think we need to do something, you know, with respect to these developing economies that need our technology. The second is 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 really uh, with regards to global finance. I'm I'm I've been, you know, making uh, this observation about how much liquidity is there within the developed economies, uh, about 90 to 100 trillion dollars worth of liquidity that's really not been democratized, you know, for purposes of making you know, developing countries that are democratic, you know, to become better democracies. And, and I do believe that there is a role for developed economies, you know, to try to better distribute capital, to try to better 
democratize capital for purposes of, you know, countries around the world uh, as to become, you know, better democracies. And and I, I, I do believe that, you know, democracy is only going to work if there's money, there's food on the table. Unfortunately, the ability of many countries around the world that want to be better thriving democracies are not you know, being helped adequately as for them to try to put food on the table and to try to get, you know, better capital allocation. So those, those I think, are, are the two topics where I think Indonesia needs to be participatory of uh, with, with the other, you know, G20 members so that, you know, we can make a difference for not just Indonesia, but uh, hopefully for the region and the world. Gita, in addition to being a businessman, uh, a policymaker, uh, I know education is also a very important interest of yours. Uh, tell us about your work in this area. Well, I'm, I'm now spending, you know, some time in the West Coast uh, to try to work on a, on a thesis or on a hypothesis where, you know, an increasing number of democracies are not showing uh, ability to select talent based on meritocracy. They've been able to select talent more based on loyalty and or patronage. And to me, that's paradoxical because you're, you're supposed to, as a democracy, to be able to democratize talent better. Democratizing talent is really distributing, you know, the best talent into as many places as possible. Uh, and that basically translates to, you know, the selection of talent based on meritocracy, but it's not happening. So how do we fix this? So this is at the tertiary level where I'm working. But um, outside, you know, what I'm doing in terms of trying to research on this stuff is is really making sure that, you know, countries like Indonesia, you know, have better representatives, better, more representatives in great universities around the world. So I, I, I have been encouraging uh, people in the government and outside the government in Indonesia to try to have, you know, representation or students, you know, in, in great universities around the world. But what's really interesting, which is, you know, a bit of a mockery, you know, in the 80s, we had about 16,000 Indonesians studying at any given time in the U.S. Right now, that number has dwindled to less than 9,000 where, you know, during the same period since the 80s until today, we've seen significant rises of the number of students from Korea, from Turkey, from India, from China, you know, participating in the educational narrative in not just the U.S., but all over the world, you know, as they're seeking, you know, technological wisdom, social, you know, scientific wisdom, and all the rest. And this, I think, is, is something that countries like Indonesia need to be working on. At the non-tertiary level, uh, I do believe uh, that, you know, kindergarten uh, education is key because, you know, your, your brain formation takes place before you're nine years old at the rate that you're not getting, you know, enough nutrition. You know, the risk of stunting is not to be underestimated in many developing economies around the world. Indonesia is one of them. Uh, you got to make sure that the software... Uh, that's being taught into the heads of these little kids, you know, is is uh, good. And and I'm I'm a bit concerned because in many countries, developing and undeveloped, you know, they're not recruiting uh, the best of teachers for the most elementary of education. And I'm a big believer of the fact that, you know, there's there's a study on this, right? If 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 you recruit a teacher that comes from the top twentieth 
percentile of, of any institution, he or she is going to be able to teach within a year, about a year and a half's worth of education. Whereas if you recruit a teacher from the bottom 20th percentile, he or she is only going to be able to teach within a year about six months' worth of education. So this is a pretty systemic uh, concern, I think, for non-tertiary education in many developing economies. So I think, I think the focus on finding the right teacher is key as opposed to finding the right curriculum. Uh, I think it's much more structural. Uh, and these are some of the areas that I've been sort of like, you know, trying to be an advocate, uh, advocate for uh, in, in Indonesia. I appreciate your work uh, on primary education. I know you've been very active in that area, among many other areas in education. Finally, in addition to being a business leader, a government policymaker, an educator, you are also a highly accomplished musician. Uh, tell us about one of your most memorable musical performances well I, I I had to scrape for a living right when I was in you know at the tail end of my high school and most of my college days you know in, in addition to washing dishes uh, you know I did gigs you know left and right and I would I would regard those gigs you know on a Friday night or a Saturday night as as some of the more of favorable musical experiences because not only was I able to please people with you know my musicality but I was I was able to you know learn the importance of you know networking uh, learn the importance of communicating with people uh, and and of course being able to survive and and music has always been a big part of my life until today so at, at the latter part of my life, uh, until recently, I've been, you know, helping groom, you know, promising musicians from the region so that, you know, they, they could always make ends meet. And, and I, my, my, my message to each one of these, also within the film industry as of late, my, my message has always been, you know, whatever you do, don't forget about finishing your degree finishing your education and, and whatever. I, I think it'd be kind of cool to combine, you know, your musicality with non-musicality. And, and I'm in the camp that believes that, you know, divergence is key in, in your life. Uh, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a big believer of being an early specializer. I think being a late specializer, I think, is much more important, you know, to me. That, that sort of, like, helps in mitigating long-term risks because you can actually anticipate... Um, you know, blind spots a little bit better than just being an early specializer. Uh, so I don't know. That's that's kind of my 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 life's uh, you know ph philosophy. You know, as of late. And and you know, last on music, uh, I I study classical music, but I ventured into just about everything else. I did heavy metal. I did rock and roll. I did blues. I did jazz. So I, I, I listen to different genres on a, on a daily basis. You could find me listening to hip-hop uh, or you could find me listening to, you know, Debussy or you could find me listening to Miles and Jimi Hendrix and, and, and all the rest. I think, I think that just makes, uh, you know, my life a little bit more fun. It's important to have passions and fun in life as well as being serious. Gita, this has been fascinating. Thank you for talking with me and my listeners. Uh, if you would like to learn more about Pak Gita Widiawan's insights on Indonesia, Southeast Asia, and global issues, 
let me recommend you listen to his interview show. What's Your Endgame is available on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Additionally, if you would like to learn more about doing business and investing in Southeast Asia, let me suggest you listen to additional episodes of my podcast. This podcast is the 11th episode in my ongoing series exploring economic development, investment, and culture in Southeast Asia. Finally, if you would like to learn more about how people in different parts of the world are building successful businesses and organizations, let me recommend you visit my website, www.tlfraser.com. All of my podcasts and a selection of my newsletters are available there. Thank you. Thank you.